We're going to uh, turn to some scriptures in just a little bit. A little different study tonight. We're going to be some more of a topical thing. We're going to look at some verses a little bit later. I want to share with you the importance of what we're talking about. I mean, you could ask a number of questions that would be important, really important, like where are you going to go to college if you're young? That's crucial. Uh, what are you going to choose for a career? Who are you going to marry? Where are you going to live? Um, and there's a lot of questions you could ask tonight that are important, but I can't think of any more question, any question more important, I should say, than are you sure that you are saved? I'll tell you my own personal life experience. I professed Christ when I was 12 years old, and I can tell you the date. November 19th, 1976. And the reason I could is because they made such a big deal of that in my home church. And I didn't know the date. After I got saved, I couldn't remember when it was. So I had my youth pastor go back and check it out for me, and he found it. Um, but that was crucial for in, in their thinking back then. And so I do know the date. But I can tell you this, knowing the date didn't give me confidence. Um, from 12 to 15 years old, uh, I didn't have any confidence that I was saved. Although I went to a good church and I went to all the services and I had been baptized and my parents ran the nursery um, and I was the lead, one of the lead persons on our Bible quiz team and a bunch of all that kind of stuff. But didn't have any confidence. And I can tell you through pastoral experience that almost every person, if you've ever been here, you'll know. If you had kids, you're probably going to have them go through it, perhaps. But the reason why I didn't have any confidence is because I wasn't living right. I wasn't messed up in the sense of a lot of things that would happen today, but enough that I knew that what I did at church and what I did at school, I went to public school all my life until 10th grade. And so I was totally one person at church and totally another person at school. Obviously, I was on the sports teams and wanted to be popular and fit in with everybody else. And so you end up talking like they do and laughing at what they laugh at and having their priorities and view on life. And so I tried to hide that as much as I could at home. But I knew deep down in my heart something was wrong. And so I, many nights for three years, I went to bed thinking if I died, I'm probably going to go to hell. And I was scared out of my mind and uh, bothered me a lot. Obviously, not enough to do anything about it for three years. But it wasn't until I was going out for baseball in the public high school, which was 10th grade back then almost, um, I broke my arm severely. Almost, my bones almost came out of my skin. It was so bad. Um, I couldn't play sports for about two months. And God got a hold of my heart, changed my mind. Instead of going to the public school, uh, I went to the private school that had opened up in my church and totally changed my life. I'm called into ministry because of it. But if he had to ask me if I knew I was saved, I couldn't tell you for sure. I really didn't know. Um, and I have talked to teenagers. I've talked to adults. Um, I was a youth pastor in my home church where I grew up. I graduated seminary. I went back and was the youth pastor for five years at the church where I was a little boy and grew up. I'm waiting down at the front at an altar, altar call when our pastor was preaching. And so he starts the altar car, the end of the service, the altar call. I can't say that. Um, but he, he, so people start coming forward. And one of them was the chairman of our deacons. And I'm thinking he's coming forward to make himself available so that he can talk to other people who need help. 
So he comes forward, and I'm standing down in the front, and I'm expecting him to walk right by me and stand over on the other side. But he doesn't. He comes right up to me. Again, remember, I'm like 25, and he's probably 45. And he shakes my hand, and he says, Would you take some time and talk to me? I need to make sure I'm saved. Wow. I go, Seriously? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, seriously. I, I really thought he might be joking, although that's not what you joke about in church. But he was serious, and so I did. I took him aside, talked to him. He had tears in his eyes. Um, I don't know all the reasons. He didn't tell me that day why he was doubting. But that would be one of many stories I could tell you um, of people who you think, ah, this is easy, I, you know, but it's not. It's not always easy, and I can tell you, it's usually because there's something that's not happening right in their life. Um, let me explain the difference between two things so you don't get wrong where I'm headed. There's a difference between eternal security and assurance. I'm hoping tonight that if you don't need this, you'll be able to help someone else who does. So I've tried to, and I've talked about it so much, I've got quite a few slides, and I'm going to try to get through them all to give you some help. Eternal security is... Um, the truth of your salvation as God knows it. Okay? That means if you are saved, here's what it means. You can never lose your salvation. Okay? The Bible doesn't talk about you have it and then you lose it. That's not a biblical concept. There are churches, some churches of Christ, some churches of the Nazarene, and others, evangelical free. There are some denominations that include that in their doctrine and believe you could lose it. We don't believe that, and I don't believe the Bible teaches that whatsoever. That would be eternal security. Assurance of it is, am I confident that the salvation I have is real? Okay? This is about whether I think I know or I really do know. Okay? So eternal security, if you're saved, you are saved and you cannot lose it. But the question is, do you have confidence? Do you know that your profession is a possession, we used to say? So I want to make sure you know what we're talking. We're not talking about eternal security tonight. We're talking about whether you're confident in your salvation and whether it's real. So here's the main question tonight. And the key word I underline, how can you know that you have eternal life? And I'm going to be flat out honest with you. And maybe at the end you may prove me wrong and you already got this down. Um, I am convinced that this is a problem that a lot of Christians do not understand. What the Bible says, now I know what people have said to them, but what does the Bible say about how you can know? And by the way, great thought, God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to go to bed for three years like I did. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to have a big question mark about whether your eternal destiny is settled. He does not want you to be in the dark about that. He wants you to know. So this is a biblical Help tonight, because you ought to know. You ought to have confidence. And I want to give it to you and help you along those lines tonight. So how? This is what we're going to talk about. Now, there's a couple of verses. You can turn to them in your Bible, but I quoted, I put them on the ESV up here on the screen. And here's the reason why. They're written by the same author, John the Apostle. One is at the end of his gospel. One is at the end of his first epistle. But the wording is very similar, except for the exchange of the two lines that I have highlighted. And I'm going to tell you why. John 20, 31 says, here's the purpose he wrote his gospel. But these are written, meaning all these stories he included in the gospel of John, these are written, purpose clause, so that you may believe. Believe what? Well, this has content. 
that Jesus is the king of Israel, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, king. Just put king in your mind. The son of God, which also means king, but later came to be filled with the deity aspect. Okay? So he's the king. He's more than just the man king. He's the, he's the God king. And that what? By believing, second time it's mentioned, you may have life in his name. All right? Very similar wording at the end of first show. Why did he write the first show? What's the purpose of it? He tells you, I write these things to you, all the things that he's written in first John. They're all the ways that how you can know. Okay? I write these things to you who, here it is again, who believe in the name of the Son of God. Almost identical word to the front. That you may know that you have eternal life. Up there it says that by believing. And here it says believing. And so there is a kind of, here's my point, there's a kind of believing that allows you to know. So answer tonight, how can I know if I have eternal life? Here's what we have to know to answer that. Ready? Do I believe? Okay? What does it mean then? To believe, and this is the part I think that a lot of Christians aren't accurate about. And I want to fill in the blanks of what believing is as the Bible teaches it. All right? So if I gotta know, I gotta know that I believe. So I gotta understand what it means to believe as far as saving. Now there's two ways that people think about what the Bible says about believing. Some people think that you can believe and you don't have to have any life change. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. It's called easy believism. Okay? Easy believism says that all I have to do is believe the facts about Jesus without having acts for Jesus. Get that? Is that too close? I, I just believe the facts about Jesus, but there doesn't have to be any acts for Jesus in my life. So I can believe but my life doesn't have to change, right? When I was 12 to 15, the problem was is I believed the facts, but when I looked at my life, it contradicted what I believed. Because I said I believed in Jesus and what he, all he stood for, and then the way I lived, they didn't mesh, right? So believing without life change. In other words, as long as I know the facts, and let me scare you, I, I, I went to my my sister's house, and we stayed there, and all my sisters were there. So we got together, and we had a Bible study, and I did this, because I'm not convinced that a number of my nieces are believers. And the reason is because they live like I did when I was their age. And so I gave this whole presentation, and then afterwards I called a couple of them, and I said, I talked to them personally about it, and I went through it, because... They don't have the life change that goes with it. So there's some people saying, well, all i got to believe is... And here's the verse I told them. We're going to refer to it at the end. James 2 says, in verse 19, it says, If you believe there is one God... And by the way, that's a Jewish statement. It's a shortened version of the Shema, which says, Deuteronomy 6.4, says what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... Yes. So James, being the half-brother of Jesus, says what? An Orthodox Jew would quote the Shema in the morning and the evening. Jesus would have done it. 
And he says, if you believe that there is one God, or God is one, you're orthodox in your beliefs. He says, you do well. But here's what he's going to tell us in James, that if your orthodoxy isn't matched up with orthopraxy, you know what orthopraxy is? That you live orthodox. Not that I just believe orthodox, but I live orthodox. Because here's what James says, if you believe that there is one God, you do well, but know this, he says, but the demons believe and tremble. And the word means to shudder or shake. Can I tell you this? Satan believes all the same facts about Jesus as we do. Did you know that? Satan tonight believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't that what John said? That you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the facts. He believes what? He believes that Jesus lived a perfect life. Because he knows he tried to tempt and it didn't work. He believed that Jesus died on the cross. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead. He believes that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. He knows these things. In fact, I would tell you this. He knows them better than you. And I would also say this, by the way. He quotes scripture and probably knows the Bible better than most of us. How many would say here tonight, I believe that Satan is born again. When I get to heaven, I will see him. That's a joke, right? But why not? He knows all the facts. And he believes them as much as you and I believe them. But what would you say is missing? He has facts with no acts. Right? He has believing without life change. What I want to present to you tonight is that believing a biblical belief that saves is a belief with life change. Not because the life change earns God's grace or favor or merits it or or works for it. No, but because, I'll show you in a little bit, because with salvation there is a cause and effect relationship between faith and works. Okay? So we're going to tell you. Now, there are a lot of people, and if I went around and asked you tonight, and I've experienced this multiple times, I mean, probably more than I could count. If I asked tonight, hey, how do you know you're saved? And the, almost immediately, vast majority of people would say, and it would be in some form like this, well, because, and I'll just use mine, because when I was 12, I remember Glenn Schunk, who was an evangelist that our church had at Calvary Baptist Church, had it in for an evangelistic meeting. They did that back in the days in the 70s. He was there and on a Friday night. He preached on hell and I was petrified and I practically ran down the aisle and my sixth grade teacher was waiting there as one of the workers and he took me aside in the room, showed me the gospel and Romans Road. I prayed the sinner's prayer and most people will say in their own version of that whole thing and that's how I know. I call that The past prayer view. Okay? Here's the thing about the past prayer view. I'll have to tell you this. When I got saved, I did pray a prayer. And someone did take the Bible and show me what the gospel is all about. I did all those things. But that isn't going to give you assurance. Remember, we're not talking eternal security. Assurance. Right? You know the Bible never once says, if you want to know you're saved, look in the past. It never says that. It never says, if you want to be confident that you know Jesus, to look at a time way back in the day, whether it was you were a kid or a teenager, and the time you prayed a prayer at some point, even though praying the prayer is a good thing. It never says, if you want to know, look back in the past. 
at an event that you said or did. It never does that. But you know what the Bible's view of how to have assurance is? Not past prayer, present practice. Present practice. And I'm going to show you tonight from the Bible, and I'll let you interact and, and find it for yourself inductively. The Bible says that your faith will cause you to do works. Not because you work for it, but because you've been changed by it. And the Bible's going to say, look at your life, and does your life demonstrate that what you say is true of your life is actually a reality? Without that, you will have no assurance. If your present practice doesn't work, and let me quote some verses for you. 1 John is replete with them, and by that I mean, it says, If you hate your brother, but say that you walk in light, you are in darkness even until now. If you say that I love God, but I hate my brother, watch out, ready? You are a liar. A liar. And on and on the verses go. So let me move on here tonight to the next one. Easy believism. Easy believism says that I start salvation and I read the gospel, I understand and accept the facts cognitively. I know the facts, who God is, who Jesus is, what he did, how he lived, when he died, but I know all, I know all that, right? I start salvation with that, and then at the end when I die, see, that's when eternal life kicks in, and I go to heaven when I die, and that's when my salvation is completed. But what easy believism does is everything in between, there's this big nothing. In other words, I got saved from my sin, and I got and the penalty of it, and that demonstrates the penalty of it when I die, but there's really no need to be saved from the power of sin in between. And I would say they want a salvation that has regeneration and glorification, but not sanctification. Does that make sense? Because salvation is a package. Remember Pastor Martin used to say that? You get the whole thing. You don't get Jesus just as a Savior. You get him as Lord, right? So you get salvation is all of it. It's regeneration, sanctification, and glorification. But the easy believism says, if I just say the prayer, then I'm good to the glorification part, even if in between, I don't live like it at all. Right? And I have seen people, and I'm not exaggerating, I know people, who are smoking dope, um, living with someone immoral, um, and on and on it goes, and are incredibly confident that they know Jesus. And the reason is because when they were 10, even though now they're 40, they made the prayer. Even though they ignore verses in the Bible says that any person who is sexually immoral, deviant, ungodly, drunkard, homosexual, on and on and on goes, shall never inherit the kingdom of God. Even though the Bible is very explicit in Romans that if you continue in those sins that you do not have eternal life except you are wait, God's wrath is waiting on you. I mean, there's some pretty explicit scriptures, but they have it. And here's why. Because we have been taught, or many people have been taught for years, that you can have the regeneration and the glorification, but sanctification is optional. And the Bible knows nothing of that kind of salvation. Because it's a whole package. Compared to 
flip it on, is what I would call the biblical view, which is effectual believism, which puts all three of them in there together. That regeneration starts when you get saved, obviously, and then you continue on in your salvation and sanctification. And I like to use this term because I think it's very helpful. And I say you're on a trajectory, okay? Because you know as well as I do that when you get saved that no one is perfect and no one is sinless. And all we have to do is ask your spouse or mine or your kids to know that's true, right? It's not that we're sinless or perfect because sanctification is basically more and more like Jesus, And sometimes that sanctification looks different in different people. We're all going to make this progress. Here's where we start, and here's glorification, right? So I'm moving, and sometimes it's up, down, and up, and back, and then it's forward. So it's not a straight line, right? Because we're sinners, and we're selfish, and sometimes we're not what we ought to be, and that's for sure, and maybe then some. It's not because Christians like David can't even commit heinous sins, adultery, and murder. He did those things, right? But it's, it's a trajectory, it's, it's, it's the line on which your life is heading into. That's what sanctification is. That progressively, slowly, and sometimes not evenly, but the trajectory of where my life is heading, it has a direction. And it's becoming more and more like Jesus. The problem is, is when the trajectory isn't there, that we don't have any assurance or confidence in it because the idea is that when you get saved, Jesus lives in you. And we all know this, if what goes in should come out. But if Jesus is going in and Satan is coming out, that's not going to breed much confidence. So what we need is to understand, not because sanctification works our way to heaven, no at all. It's a result of, a product of Salvation. Salvation is not by works, but salvation produces works. So if you have the one, you will have the other. Are they different? Yes. Are they completely separate? No, because one is associated with the other. So let me give the illustrations in the scriptures now that we're at that point. I have to call this cause and effect. And let me illustrate it for you this way if it hasn't made clear in your mind so far. Let me give you three examples. Um, car accident. Uh, Mackenzie, my daughter, and believe it or not, my, my daughter-in-law yesterday um, were in car accidents. Um, both of them were hit by people and really hit bad, so the cars were almost totaled. My daughter's car was totaled. And then the person moved off the car they wrecked into and drove off. Both of them. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? So if I told you, hey, my daughter Mackenzie was in a horrible car accident and this guy slammed her, told the car, and, I, and you said, hey, that's awful. I'll be praying for you. I mean, how bad was it? And I said, let me show you the pictures. So I took out my camera on my phone and I showed you the picture. And you look at the car and you're going, dude, that looks like my car. And I just bought mine last week. You say, where's the dent? Then you look at and you got you saw there's nothing there's no dent. There's no scuffs. There's not, the, the paint's not even chipped. You would have what? Why, why would you think something was wrong? That can't, maybe, is that the wrong picture? Maybe that's another car. You know why? Because if I tell you the tar was, car was totaled, what would you imagine that the car would look like? Yeah, because why? Because cause has an effect, right? When I was growing up, I was 10 years old, sitting on our screened-in back porch in Robinson, Illinois, a little teeny town on the border. 
Um, and our, I don't know if you guys remember this, or you're old enough, but we used to have block parties. And they'd barricade off the streets, and everybody in the neighborhood would come together, and we'd play fun games, and everyone would bring something to eat. Our family's job was to make the homemade ice cream. You remember those little round chests that were tall, and then you put all the ice and the salt in there, and you have to crank, you don't even remember, am I, am I the only one that's this old? Well, my sister and I were sitting on the back porch, and she was the cranker, and I sat on the ice, which, by the way, is, I can still remember how cold that was. So I'm sitting on this thing, and I'm uncomfortable. I'm kind of like moving all the time. To keep myself. So she's cranking, and I'm trying to keep it steady. And all of a sudden, super black clouds come out. And then it rains like crazy. And I'm sitting there going like, oh, it's terrible. We're not going to be able to go out and do this thing. And my sister goes, no, it's not bad. We'll get all the ice cream. <laughs> I said, you're right. This is great. <laughs> right? And so, and all of a sudden, it starts hailing. I mean, hailing. Big Golf ball ones. And now I'm starting to get, I mean, I'm on the screen in porch. There's only screen. There's no glass, nothing else. And then all of a sudden, it's raining, it's hailing, and then thunk, complete silence. Like it all just like someone turned off the switch and it was gone. And that's when at the end of my block, Laura Lee was my neighbor girl. The tornado came right over her house, didn't touch it, landed in the street, and like it has a car with a GPS, came straight down the street right at my house. Of course, I run like crazy inside. My, I scream, my sister screamed, and I, to this day, she says I scream more like a girl than she did, but I can't have that proved. But I ran inside. My mom's on the phone inside the door. She hears me scream, drops the phone, turns to get see where we are, and a two-by-four comes right through the phone, through the wall, all the way through where she was standing. She screams. My dad goes, there's a boat in our backyard. There was a... Th- a uh, 15, or no, an 18-foot boat that our owners, the owners were three blocks away, landed in our backyard. So the, it turns right around, wiped out my neighbor's house. He was killed. And it threw all of his house into our yard. We had, back then, we had $10,000 worth of broken lumber in our yard, a boat in our backyard, and our paper, our house was on the front page of the paper the next day. And I remember that. My cat was a Siamese cat, which I <coughs> hated. Um, um, this cat was so afraid, I'm trying not to smile, um, from the tornado that we didn't find it for three days. And we finally found it, and it came downstairs, literally like this, and it only had half of its hair left. And we had to put it to sleep. That's how bad the tornado was. No. Um, but let me, if I told you that and showed you the picture, what would you expect that picture of my house would look like? A wreck, right? But what if my house looks just like yours does now? Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> On the outside. Just kidding. Um, what would you say? You would say, you didn't get hit by a tornado. You know why? Because there's a cause and an effect. Now, seriously. We've already prayed for people tonight who have cancer. But you know when people have serious cancer, life-threatening cancer, and they've taken chemotherapy and radiation, what do you expect? They might have lost their hair. And they might have lost a lot of weight. And they're probably frail, and they don't get out much. And I don't expect to be told with cancer to have a full head of hair and come out and say, Pastor Walker, let's go out and play one-on-one. I don't expect people to do that. 
Why? Because if you have cancer, that cause has an effect on you. But if you can do everything you did before and there's no difference, what happens? Then you have to be really suspect, don't you? Do you really have cancer? Now listen, here's what the Bible says. In your life spiritually, when you get saved, the biggest, most powerful cause there is, it will have an effect, life change, on your life. And if there isn't any change, can I say it this way? If there's no effect, then there is no cause. Let me show you how the Bible says it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Your job in the last five, six minutes or so here is I'm going to read it and you're going to tell me the cause and the effect. And these are pretty clear verses. Romans 8.13. Ready? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Tell me the cause. Okay, if you live according to the flesh, you live worldly, you live sinfully, that's what your life is described by, that's your trajectory. If you live according to the flesh, what's the effect? You will die. But, in contrast, ready? But, if, now notice, if by the Spirit, not because you're doing it, because you can't manufacture life change that glorifies God, but if you're really saved and His Spirit is in you, if by the Spirit... It says, you put to death the deeds of the body. You don't live in it, you kill it. You will live. So what's the cause? Yeah, you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. That's the cause. And if you do that, what's the effect? Yeah, it's the cause and effect and understanding it and having it be in your life is the difference between life and death. That's how powerful it is. James chapter 2. Remember the passage I alluded to earlier? Let's turn there. James chapter 2, and I'm only sampling some for you tonight. There are many others. James chapter 2 says, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers? And notice the difference between saying and doing. If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, in other words, remember I told you they are different, but they go together. Can that faith save him? Can you have a faith that doesn't produce works? James would say emphatically, no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, again he repeats it, if you say to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him anything. In other words, you say all these things that looks like you're going to do anything, but you don't do anything. If you just verbalize help, but you don't actually actualize help, He goes, what good is that? In other words, it's not good for anything. So a faith that just talks but doesn't walk, here's what James said, what good is that? Well, he's going to tell you what good it is. So faith, verse 17, by itself, meaning without works, what does it say? It does not have works, it's dead. So what's the cause? A faith that doesn't have any life change. It doesn't have any works. And by the way, A real faith is not one that just doesn't do bad things. It's one that does good things. Because he's talking about clothing someone and helping someone. 1 John is all full of that. So a real faith that saves you not only says, I don't do the bad things anymore, but I also do the good things. It's both sides of the coin. And he says, if you don't have a faith that has that kind of works, it's malnutritioned, no. 
It needs help? No, it's dead. It isn't real. It's not even alive. And then he goes into our verse. I told you that I'll, if you, I'll show you my faith with my works. You show me your faith apart from your works. He says there's a difference between those two. And the devil, and he shows the devil and the demons believe, and that's his example. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this very reason, look at this. Make every effort. And King James, I think, New King James says to add to your faith. What do you mean? You got to add something? Isn't faith alone enough? Of course it is. But the adding is what you do because it's the effect. And the ESV says supplement. Supplement your faith with what? Well, he's going to give you the list. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, Watch this, brotherly affection. So it's not just between you and God that proves you're a Christian, but how you treat other people between you and other believers. And brotherly affection with love. Catch what he says at verse 8. For if these qualities, ready, are yours, and here's my word, and increasing. It's not that you just have them and occasionally do something nice. No, it's the trajectory. They're increasing. Incrementally, you're going up. You're making growth. We call it maturity, spiritual growth. You're you're increasing. It's just a little bit better all the time, he says. If that's true of you, then it makes you effective, not unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. In other words, your knowledge of him is real. It's fruitful. It's not just a knowledge based on facts. For whoever lacks these things, verse 9, on the other side, you don't have these qualities and they're not increasing. You're nearsighted. In fact, you're blind. And you forgot what being cleansed from your sin is all about to begin with, he says. Therefore, brothers, what are you supposed to do with that? Be more diligent. Even more at it. Go harder at what? To confirm your calling and election. See, to provide assurance. That God really has called you and saved you and made you his own. For if you, what, listen, if you practice these qualities, you live them out, do them, you will never fall, he says. And an entrance, verse 11, will be given to you into the kingdom. Lastly, 1 John. 1 John 1 and 2, and he says it numerous times, says it so many times in a row, I think he's trying to beat us over the head with it. And the little phrase is, if, if you say, or if we say, watch, because what he wants to say is there can't be this huge gap and dichotomy between what you say and what you do. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, notice, but we walk in darkness. So if I verbalize, I know God, but my life communicates something else, what does he say is true? Then we lie, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Verse 8, same little phrase. If we say we have no sin, what's the problem? We are self-deceived. We have believed a lie. And the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So if we say, hey, I, I, I can say this, but do something completely different, you're making God out to be a liar. But he's not done because he wants you to, remember, God wants you to know that you're sure, sure you're saved. 2-4. Whoever says, see it again, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. If you say you have the cause, but there is no effect. I have faith, but my life is marked by disobedience. 
You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Verse 6. Whoever says that I abide in him, and God's in me, and I'm in God, then here's what the obligation is. You have to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. So if you're not becoming increasingly, incrementally more and more like Jesus, then what you say isn't valid. Verse number 9, last one. Whoever says he is in the light, vertically, but hates his brother horizontally, you're really in the dark. See, it's the opposite. So if your words are the opposite of your walk, then your salvation is the opposite of what you think it is. And that's the problem. Can I say it? That's the problem. So what do you do with doubt? What do you do if I'm leaving here tonight and say, Pastor Walker, I'm not really sure. I'm not confident that I'm a Christian. I know I did in the past. I know the prayer I said. But here's what the Bible says. Don't look back to that. Look to your life now. How do you love God? And how do you love people? And how do you not love the world and sin? He says, look at that, because if you're looking to have confidence in your salvation, because let me tell you this, for three years, I didn't do anything for God. I was paralyzed. I I couldn't do anything but think about whether I was going to die and go to hell. I wasn't ready to witness anyone, serve anyone, do anything for anyone. Not at all. Let me tell you tonight, you can't answer any more important question than this one. And God says, let me tell you how you can answer it and how you can know. Take a look at your life and say to God, God, does the cause of salvation, has it have and been having an effect in my life? And if not, say, God, I'm not sure where that leaves me with you, but tonight I want you to take over everything. Take over everything in my life. Let's pray. Father, help us. You desire and your word makes it clear that you want all of us to know with confidence, assurance, that we have eternal life. Father, help us to take an honest evaluation of our own lives and our present practice. What is the true trajectory of our lives? It's easy to deceive ourselves. The scripture says so. But help us to match our lives up with what the Bible says. And Father, see if what we say and what we do and how we live match. If not, Father, help us to take that to heart and mean business with you. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.